I will feast at the table of the Lord. I will feast at the table of the Lord. I won't hunger anymore. Welcome to the table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. We worship at Island Creek Elementary School, 7855 Morning View Lane, every Sunday at 10 a.m. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. For the sake of the good news, who will not receive a hundred 
fold now in this age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and fields with persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life, but many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks, Thanks, be, to Thanks be to God. So we um, began this new sermon series two weeks ago um, entitled Grateful, and we're saying that in this sermon series we are going to try to move together from a sense of me and my life to a sense of, of we. This we maybe as the Kingstown Communion, or this we as maybe... The society around us or and we and in the first week we said one thing very clearly we said we as a society right now have been we do gratitude and and thanksgiving horribly we are a completely unthankful society and so I showed you the first week this um, this image, uh, and I said that there's various ways to think about gratitude, about what being grateful looks like. And we said, could it be maybe, maybe it's a feeling. And last week we talked about feelings, and we said that maybe you experience gratitude more from a personal aspect, a me, a personal emotions way. This, um, the next one is this personal ethics way. Maybe you experience it in the way you practice. Maybe your day-to-day -day routines um, lend towards gratitude, or maybe you want them to. Um, then there's some people maybe live out gratitude more in this um, this public emotions way. Like when you're at a Thanksgiving table with other friends around the table, you feel grateful for your family around you. You like it at a sporting event, or you feel grateful when you are um, at your common table um, sharing your life with one another. Or maybe you are somebody who feels grateful more in a public sense when you're out serving the community. It's you feel grateful when you are um, you are voting. Maybe this past Tuesday there was this sense of gratitude in you when, you, when you, be able, you were able to cast your vote. Maybe you feel grateful when you are serving the poor. All of these various components of gratitude, and today we're going to talk a little bit about the habit of gratitude through the lens of the rich young ruler. So this story, the rich young ruler, um, has been passed down through history. Um, it's called the rich young ruler. It appears in three Three of four Gospels, it appears in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and in no single Gospel does it appear as the rich young ruler. Somehow he gave it this name throughout time, but none of them say this. In Matthew, he's a young man. In Mark, he's a rich man. In Luke, he's a ruler. And so we put them all together, and we squish them all together, and we say that Jesus encountered a rich young ruler, because all of the stories sound so similar. About 15 years ago, I met um, a friend um, named Josh, and Josh had just graduated from an evangelical school outside of Boston, and he was so earnest about his faith. Like, he just loved Jesus. He just, he just oozed love for Jesus, and he wanted to give his life to serve Jesus to the ends of the earth. And so for some time, Josh went off as this self-proclaimed missionary and lived and ministered in this small village in Guatemala. And in this little village, there was land reform underway. And the poorest people in the village um, were having their land ripped away from them by richer um, people and, and people who had the resources to yank the land away from them. And there was this great deal of violence breaking out, too, as various groups of people tried to prevent that from happening. 
And it was a terrible time in Latin America in general, as there were still slight remnants of groups after dictatorships, and people were still disappearing randomly. And, and so Josh moved into this village and simply wanted to just be with the people. At this time, there, they had this Bible study that happened once a week in the village, and this was the center for this community. And, and, um, and this place where they could use the words of Jesus and gain strength from them and power in the midst of the struggle they were going through, in the midst of the injustice that surrounded them. And so Josh told me the story of the day he went to that Bible study and this text was being read in Spanish, which, Jesus, which Josh, Josh understood and communicated in well. They were talking about how they read and understood the text of the rich young ruler. And Josh grew increasingly uncomfortable as each of them shared their story um, and how they had each lost something to follow Jesus. And then finally, one person in the group spoke up and said, you know, they're really, God really does have a special love, a preferential love for the poor. And then they came to Josh, and the leader of the Bible study said, thank you, we're so glad you joined us today. We are so eager to hear from you how our friends in North America interpret this passage. And this was what Josh had been kind of avoiding. Um, Josh took a deep breath and he said, uh, well, where I come from, we don't see this passage as particularly literal. Um, we see it more as a metaphor that Jesus could look into a man's heart and he would know the one thing that kept this man from being a disciple and for that man, it was his wealth. And it, it's not that he's, maybe maybe he's not even really a, a wealthy man per se, but he's a man who loves his money more than he loves God. And, and that was his stumbling block. And, and so Jesus said, lay that aside and come and follow me. Josh had only repeated what he heard in every Sunday school lesson, in every sermon he had ever heard preached on this passage, um, he repeated what he had heard in his college biblical studies classes, too, ever since he was a little boy all the way up until now, and he was absolutely shocked at the next thing that happened. There was complete silence in the room, and then they moved on to the next person without ever asking him a question, without engaging him in conversation as they had with every person before him. After the group was over, the leader comes up to Josh and says, um, I don't know if we can have you back here. And Josh is completely dumbfounded, because this is why he's here, to be with the people. And he says, why? I don't, I don't understand. And he said, well, we think you might have lied to us. You said you were a Christian, and yet you interpret this story as a metaphor? How can that possibly be? Everyone knows that Jesus meant exactly what he said to that rich young ruler. And so Josh left this Bible study, and he's shocked, and he just left sad. 
And so we sat in this hipster coffee shop in Norfolk, downtown Norfolk, as Josh is telling me this story. And he said that that was the moment that changed his life. Everything he thought about the Bible, everything he thought about the Christian life and what the habits of Christian life are supposed to look like were completely reversed that day in that Bible study. He said, I'm, I'm so grateful for how that changed me. I've never been able to read this as a metaphor anymore, ever again. I've never been able to shake how this passage calls me into habits of gratitude, habits of living that changed life inside of me. And this changes my entire outlook on life. And so I have to confess personally that I, most of my life, have been like Josh. And I wonder if you have too. I, it would be realistic to assume it because we are all in North America. I'm taught since childhood Sunday school that this is a metaphor for only the things that we hold close to our hearts, whatever those things are. But I'm here to tell you that there are Christians around the world who are looking at us here in Northern Virginia, North America, and don't know what to make of our faith because we turn this into a metaphor. Could it really be that Jesus hates wealth? Is that even vaguely possible in a universe like ours? And are those our only two choices? Are those the only two choices we have? A metaphor or a hatred from Jesus toward a world like the one we inhabit. What are we to make of this? This story for us is so compelling and so rich. And this man who seems to have a heart for God, um, he runs up to Jesus and he throws himself in front of him and says, what do I do to inherit eternal life, Jesus? And Jesus looks at him with deep compassion and says, well, you know all the habits of faith. You know the list that we've given you, you know the commandments. And then Jesus recites them, reminds him of them. And then this man called the rich young ruler says, yes, yes, Lord, well, the good news is I've, I've done all these things. I've been doing these since I was a little boy. And this man is, is earnest about his faith, much like Josh was. Um, he, he, he wants to love Jesus deeply. He wants to be a faithful Christian. He wants to be a faithful, a faithful Jewish man. Um, he's earnest and sincere and committed and a serious man of faith. Can you imagine saying to a rabbi who is gaining reputation in the town as a spiritual leader who can see into the hearts of people? Yes, I've done all this since my youth. And I don't think this man is lying. I don't. I don't think Jesus thinks he's lying either. I think Jesus seems to affirm the fact that this rich young ruler has indeed kept all of the commandments, has indeed been loyal to the habits and practices of the tradition. Except for one thing, though. Jesus says that there's only one thing missing. Go and sell your possessions and give the money to the poor, and then that's where you'll find the kingdom of heaven. And this man doesn't know what to say. Like my friend Josh, everything around the rich young ruler um, kind of falls into this shocked silence. Goes away shocked and sad like Josh did that day from that Bible study. And 
But this passage, it is, it's, it is literally about as literal as it could be. Jesus does condemn wealth, the wealth of this man. And we know that Jesus is somehow meaning this literally because of how the disciples react to this. They think that wealth is a blessing, a sign of God's favor. This is how everybody in the Old Testament, this long stream of Old Testament thought that wealth was a blessing from God and it's a sign of God's favor. And that's how these disciples were taught from their childhood that if a person was rich, it's a sign that God has poured out God's graces upon those people, their family, their tribe. These people were meant to be rich. Wealth is a sign of blessing. And the second thing that the disciples are probably thinking is, Jesus, don't rebuke this guy and send him away. We could use this guy. Can you imagine the pledge that would come into our campaign as we build this new church in the new world and reach sustainability and independence? I don't know if that sounds like anything else, but don't run him off. Don't run this guy off. We need him. We need his money. We need him to be a member of our group. And so they argue with Jesus. Jesus, what are you saying? This is very upsetting to us. And Jesus is very clear. He repeats himself twice. This is why I'm like, I don't know how I went through so much of my life thinking this was a metaphor. Because Jesus doesn't say stuff like this multiple times ever unless he's trying to get us to understand something very clearly. And he says... It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples still can't get it. They don't understand. And so they fall back on this question, this sarcastic question. Well, if that's true, Jesus, then who in the world can be saved then? If that's true, Jesus, who in the world in D.C. Metro America can be saved? Who? Who, Jesus? Finally, in, in this back and forth exchange with them, in this strange moment where Jesus seems to send away the rich guy because he's rich, Peter stands up and offers what Peter always does best. He always has the ahas for the rest of the room. Peter has this aha, these, this revelation, and he has these many times, and all of a sudden he gets up and he says, look at us. Look, look, look at us, the 12 of us your closest friends. We gave up everything to follow you. That, is that what salvation looks like? Are we saved? And Peter, Peter gets it. He, he gets what Jesus is saying, and he turns around and says, we, we did that. They hadn't even realized yet what they had done. We did that. And then Jesus replies with these amazing words. I mean, I had to read these words over and over again. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house and home like you disciples and no one who has left sisters and mothers and brothers and fathers and the fields of your trade like you all for my sake and for the sake of the good news who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age more houses and more sisters and brothers and mothers and fathers and fields with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Many who are first will be last and last will be first. So does Jesus condemn wealth or does Jesus like wealth? 
He seems to push the young ruler away, and then he now says, well, if you give everything away, I'm going to give it all back to you. If you give up your mom and your sisters and your house and your field, I'm going to give it all back to you. You're going to be wealthier than you've ever imagined. And then he adds this strange thing about some sort of social reversal that's taking place where the people who are first, those people will be last in the kingdom and the age to come and all those who seem to be last will be first now. And there's this scary little tag with persecutions. I think this text actually makes perfect sense when you understand it from these key words with persecutions. Somehow we're supposed to give up wealth that came without persecution. And Jesus is going to restore us to riches without measure, but these riches are going to come with some kind of persecution. I think so. I think Jesus comes at the rich young ruler not because he is wealthy, but because of the nature of his wealth, because of his habits, because of the system of habits his life and the life of his parents have had for years that you can't even blame him fully for. How it is that he lives and orients himself among other human beings and how it is that he came to have wealth and treasure as he has now. And Jesus is speaking to his habits Habits that are, are not those of gratitude and abundance, but rather of scarcity and personal entitlement that has snowballed over time. Think about this for a second. Answer this question for me. How is, how is it that a young Jewish man under Roman occupation, where the Jews are functionally slaves of the Roman Empire, how would a man like that end up rich? How would he end up rich? That is, that is the bizarre, unanswered question in this passage. There are very, very few Jews in Jesus' world who were rich. Most of them were incredibly poor. But this one's rich. There's only one way for a Jew to be rich in this age of the Roman Empire and its oppression of Israel. And that was that you had to be complicit in it. You had to cooperate in some way, shape, or form with Caesar's economy and Caesar's army in order to be wealthy. You had to participate in Caesar's economy, which means that the money that you carried around or kept under your bed had on it the picture of Caesar, and it was absolutely a front to a to a Jew to carry around a coin in this age with a picture of Caesar on it. It was an it was idolatry. Because Caesar was considered to be a god, and now your god is on your money. So when the rich young man comes to Jesus and says, I have kept all these commandments, Lord, Jesus actually knows something that the rich young man probably wishes Jesus didn't know, and that is that the, the very money that makes him rich, the habits and practices that make up his story and define his life up until now, has been idolatry. It's a different God altogether. And he's inherited this wealth over years, which means his family, too, has been complicit with the Roman Empire. And this doesn't happen overnight. This takes 
decision after decision after decision and choice after choice and practice after practice and habitual idolatry over and over again. He has given up his birthright as a Jew now, despite the fact that he thinks he has kept all of the Jewish commandments. He has given up his birthright to be a part of the Roman economic system that is holding his own people in slavery. And the economic system of Caesar is this pyramid of wealth by which a few people on the top have the most money, and it's based on scarcity and control and personal entitlement. And this rich young ruler, he has the money because he believes he deserves to have the money. He inherited it from his parents, who God only knows what they did to obtain it at some point in time. And they, but they had to have some time in the past serve Caesar in such a way, to such an extent, that Caesar rewarded them with his great gratitude of immense wealth. This guy was complicit, even though he looks faithful. And so, when he comes to Jesus, Jesus says... Go, shake yourself out of that system, buck against those practices, reject those habits, and begin creating a new life and way of gratitude that doesn't mimic this system of quid pro quo, but rather illuminates the grace of God in your life. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Your habits are out of step with the reign of God. Instead, come and follow me. That's what the disciples had already done. They hadn't even fully come to grips yet with what that meant in the economy of God. The 12 that followed Jesus, that is what they did. They left one set of personal habits for a whole new set of them. And they were at the bottom of the social pyramid. They weren't rich, they were fishermen. They, they had already paid their 90% of their livelihood to Caesar on a regular basis and had their land stolen from them and were held in functional debt by the, by the Roman debt slavery, by the Roman Empire. These disciples, had, they had already given up their way of life to come and follow Jesus. It wasn't much, but they were glad to get out of the economy of Caesar and find themselves in the economy of God. For that's what Jesus is describing at the end of this passage. He contrasts the wealth of this world, which is based on injustice and entitlement and scarcity and control, with the wealth of the kingdom of God, which is extraordinary, which is a prosperity beyond our understanding, a hundredfold of the wildest riches we ever dreamed of, this is when Jesus promises abundant life. If you step out of that habitual slavery of Caesar, if you step out of the oppressive economy and you join into the habits of the people of God, of the way of God, of the life of God, overflowing with grace and gratitude, there will be an economy beyond your wildest dreams waiting for you. And it will be one of safety. And it will be one of new and amazing love. And you will have new relationships, not based on quid pro quo. I do this and then you give me that in return. But based on this gift of gratitude that flows from the top down, not the bottom up. It, it is this abundance of creation. And it is based on the knowledge that God is the giver of all good gifts. And that the whole cosmos 
The whole world, the entirety of the universe is a gift to everyone, and there is enough for all. There's always been enough for all, declares the Bible from beginning to end. And the only problem is that we have to let go of our mythology and practice of scarcity. We have to let go of the idea that we control the gifts of God, that they're ours to manipulate. And we have to let go of the idea of personal entitlement, but instead recognizing ourselves in all times and all places as living a life of humble gratitude to the Lord who is the giver of all things. So Jesus does not hate wealth. He hates the wrong kind of wealth. Jesus loves the other kind of wealth. That which the scriptures refer to as abundance or, or jubilee, this writing, making it right. Have you ever heard of jubilee? This moment in the Old Testament where every seven years they would make right and, and people who received wages would divide it among the poor. It's, it's an alternative way of being. It's an alternative set of habits that can be worked together into this new system. And when that little line is thrown in there with persecutions, Jesus is alerting us to the fact that this is about two systems of wealth that are on a collision course in human history, that the economy of Caesar will always hate and persecute the economy of God. It will never make sense to them what we're talking about here. That the wealth gained from habits of injustice will always be at odds with the wealth based on the gifts and gratitude of the great creator God who provides for all. Give up one, Jesus says, and the other will be yours. And with that one, I, I do not promise you an easy life because it's going to come with persecutions. But there will be riches beyond your wildest idea. There will be life in the age to come. And don't know, I don't know about you all. <laughs> but now I'm not sad like Josh when I read this passage. Now I'm scanning through the heart and habits of my own life. And I'm thinking to myself, where, where is the money? Where is the wealth that I hold? Where is it complicit? Am I making money off the backs of others? Or is the abundance of my life a blessing that is coming from the depths of God's grace swelling up in me, aimed to be a faithful follower of the Lord? And so for people like us, this is not a text to turn to as a metaphor. And it's also not a text to leave and say, I don't want to hear that one again. <laughs> or a text to think, I'm not rich, it doesn't apply to me. It's a text that invites us into this profound moment of self and communal examination to ask ourselves, which of these systems of wealth do we belong to? Would you say you belong to the kingdom wealth, or would you say you're bound by Caesar? Which one holds your heart? To which economy to, do your habits point to? Which economy are our habits complicit in. Because when I look at my life, I hope Jesus will find me too complicit. I want to be complicit in the kingdom of God. I think we all do. Would you pray with me? God, it's not just the economies of this world that are at odds with one another. It's um, 
the kingdoms, um, your what what leadership looks like for you does not look anything like what leadership looks like in this world. You constantly are inverting the pyramid. And if we are Christians wanting to take on habits of gratitude that mimic your inverted pyramid, we first have to take a look at where all the habits of our lives, the way we spend our money, what we buy, whether or not they're participating in, in, in your kingdom or in some other kingdom that's going to always clash against yours. God, I know you do not hate wealth. We are, you are not, God, you don't want us to live lives as paupers just um, in, in, in destitute living. You don't want us to walk around with our heads hung low. But you want us to enter into this life of wealth that is completely counter to the wealth we have been taught is what we're all aiming for. The wealth we have directed our careers towards, the wealth we've gone to college to, get, to gain. You want us to come in contact with, to come to grips with, to become amazed by the abundance of, of your love and your provision for our lives that, that from the beginning of the Bible to the end showed that there is enough for all and that because Another has more does not mean I get less. And so God, call us out of our, our mindsets of scarcity. Call our church out of a mindset of scarcity and fear. Bring us to a place where we believe in your abundance and we trust in, in the kind of wealth that you say comes in a hundredfold. And we pray that prayer together, that prayer that is actually about your economy. It's a reversing of, of the pyramid where you say that we can exist on daily bread, not more than we need, but daily bread. We pray together that prayer you taught us, Jesus. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. This is the time in the service where we give um, back to God our gifts, our money. And we begin to order our lives in that way with those who are assisting.